Welcome to another edition of Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here, as always. Guest today, well, I say today, I'm actually recording to today, but the guest for this episode is Robert Hefner. Uh, Mr. Hefner, it's good to have you on. Thanks for having me. Someone suggested I should get on Hugh Hefner the other day, and I was like, well, this, <laughs> this is the, this is the, this, this, I, I guess it's Hefner. You say it just like, like Hugh, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it, yeah. No relation. Always, always get that one. Yeah. We, we just don't talk about that side of the family. <laughs> yeah. I put a link to I said, who should I have on? And someone put uh, Hugh Hefner and someone else that was dead. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, there we go. So I got Robert. So there we go. Uh, so give a quick introduction to the folks who don't know you. You have a blog, you're writing a book or a chapter in a book. I heard you're running yeah. for president and then maybe intergalactic senator or something. So what's going on? <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for the Intergalactic Senate. I think uh, Elon Musk is going to invite me out there to Mars here soon. <laughs> but um, no, for those that don't know me, I'm just an energy guy in the middle of Oklahoma. My dad always quipped with me growing up, how do you, how do you uh, make God laugh? Tell him what your plans are. And so my plans were to get to the coast, be in technology. And, and here I am in Oklahoma still doing energy. So um most of that's been historically in traditional energy and then going forward uh, the, a lot of different aspects with energy policy and advocacy work, trying to get to, you know, starting to work on the coast and influence energy policy, something that my family's done through, I guess, three or four separate um, presidential administrations. And so kind of following in those footsteps, maybe, um, you know, the pondering runs for office and, and doing a bunch of crypto. So both mining and hedge funds. Um, all over the place. Consulting work too. So it's just throw it in a bucket and do it all. Let's talk about energy policy because I just got off a, it's a um, off the record discussion. So I can't say what was said, but a, a discussion panel with some emerging market uh, leaders talking about energy policy. And um, it was myself and another gentleman that were kind of the, the uh, media types that were kind of speakers. And, um, it was interesting because he was pretty heavy on the climate change stuff, which I want to talk to you about in a minute. And I didn't want to get in a big debate. We're not debating. We're talking to these these uh, attendees. So I don't want to get in a big debate with him over that. Um, but I, I did make the point, which is that Africa should ignore most of the U.S. energy policy as it pertains to what we're doing because they're not in the same spot that we are. And he, he kept bringing this up. And I found it interesting at the end. Someone brought up the fact that, hey, you guys are wanting to, to tax us to death with a with the Paris climate accords and all this stuff. And we're just now getting into oil and gas business. And I don't know what, what, where, where they're from, but I'm just like, yes, <laughs> which is why yeah. I, I didn't say anything. I was just like, that's why I said what I said. Talk to me about what in your mind defines good energy policy. Yeah. So I, I ended up throwing it up on my website, but sound energy policy ends energy poverty and that's it. And, and I kind of reorganized that from lessons given to me by Dr. Scott Tinker at the University of Texas at Austin with the Switch Energy Alliance. The way he says it is a little bit different, but basically the same thing. And that is energy does not end poverty, but you cannot end poverty without energy. And so what this, this idea around poverty is something that people in America don't talk about because we're so far up the the Maslow hierarchy of needs. We're at the very pinnacle of that pyramid. We, we have a lot of hubris and arrogance in how we interact with the world because these people around the world, there's 2 billion people that are at the bottom rung of Maslow's hierarchy of need. They're looking for shelter, clean water, food, 
you know, they're dealing with malnourishment and all these other issues. And so what people are very surprised to learn when I give speeches and, and, and talk at universities is that at the United Nations itself, part of their sustainability development program and those sustainable development goals, poverty is the biggest issue among their millions of stakeholders. Mm -hmm. All right. So poverty is the number one issue according to the United Nations in the world. And if you ask then, well, where does climate change rank among those priorities? And by the way, there are 17 of them. It ranks 13th. And so here in the United States on a lot of your podcasts, a lot of the podcasts that I've been on, and of course I'm passionate about energy policy, we tend to gravitate toward climate change as the thing that we're talking about as well as if you listen to at least our leadership, they tell us this is an existential threat, which really implies that they think the world's going to end and everybody's going to die and it's going to burn up and all this, you know, Armageddon stuff when that's just not the case. Hold on. None of them believe it. None of them believe it. You know, I disagree. I think they actually believe it. Okay. I'll give you I, I, I think uh, AOC actually believes it. I think she's bought it hook, uh, hook line, and sinker. I'll give you she said, in 12 years, the world will end if we do not immediately cease the burning of fossil fuels. That was AOC. Where does she live? I have no idea. Do I you bet you she doesn't live where you think she lives either. I bet you she lives in some penthouse, $100 million place. Okay. She lives in either <laughs> New York or D.C., right? Sure. What's next to New York and D.C.? What is it? The ocean. The one thing that, no, I'm being serious. Bill Gates yeah. bought a what, $42 million mansion last year in San Diego on the beach. There you go. The yeah, insurance rush, companies are still underwriting them. When there's a uh, land rush in Kansas, <laughs> I'm serious. When there's a land rush in Kansas, then I will believe that these people believe what they're saying. I don't, I don't, I mean, now let me distinguish. I'm not talking about the average Joe walking around. I'm talking about the ones who push the narrative. They do not move to the middle of the country. If you right. thought in 12 years the world was going to be flooded, you would be buying land and moving to the middle of the country. You're actually, or at least to higher elevations. Okay. So that's fine. Wherever. Yeah. I'm, I'm right. saying the middle of the country. You wouldn't be staying and you wouldn't buy a beachfront property in San Diego or you wouldn't be living in New York or DC. You would be that's moving fair. inland. And Good so point. until that happens, I don't buy it. And so that would, that, that's, that's why I say I don't, I don't believe them, that they believe it. That's yeah. That's a separate issue of whether they're right or not. I just don't think that they, that they that they believe it. Yeah. It 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 more likely than not is a is a guise under which they can perpetuate their agendas. Um, I, that gets a little conspiracy theory ish for me, but it, it does make a lot of sense. But at it's the not, end of the day, going going back to your original question, you know, sound energy policy ends energy poverty, and that's what this country needs to be talking about. If we're going to impose our arrogance upon other third world countries or emerging economies, you know, that's that's immoral. That's wrong. Sure. Um, and it, that needs to be a broader discussion within this whole concept of climate change. Well, let me address the conspiracy, conspiracy theory point. Um, what I would say is um, last year during the pandemic, the Pentagon came out and talked about aliens. Now, I don't, I don't, I'm 35. How old are you? 35. Okay. So we're the same age. Um, growing up in the 90s, I don't know if that was the most alien talk ever or not, but there was a lot of alien talk in the 90s. Yeah. Movies, shows, Roswell. The Pentagon comes out in 2020. He's like, yeah, they're real. Who cares? No one. 
because no one actually believes in aliens. There are a few folks who do, but no one is really, it, it didn't even bump the needle. It doesn't, and so the alien stories now don't even bump the needle. We like to think that we believe in them. We're caught up in the idea of them. But when push comes to shove, if you really thought that the Pentagon had proof of aliens, you would be freaking out right now because everything that they say about them is that they are far more advanced technology than what we have. And no one is wigging out. No one's losing their mind. No one's talking about tripling the, the military budget. There's no United Nations resolution to fix the alien problem because no one actually believes in it. So when I say that they don't believe in the climate change stuff, I'm saying that their actions speak louder than the words to me. Um, in the same way that someone says they believe in aliens, and then there's like, I see how you draw that parallel. I'm, I'm fine with that. I'll, uh, I, I, we can get into the theologic, you know, discussions at another time on whether or not God's capable of creating other worlds that can interact with this one and quantum not, physics. Not, and I, don't believe in the aliens I don't believe in the aliens either. I'm saying if you did in the Pentagon, they, okay, in 19, in all, in all seriousness here, in 1997, if the Pentagon would have released Area 51's location and said yeah. they're aliens, you would expect, the response to be different than what we've seen over the past year. And so at the end of the day, um, there's a book. Maybe that's why China's building up their entire military really heavy <laughs> right now. There's a book on my desk up here someone wanted me to read. It's called The Black Swan. And the oh, first great book. Okay. So I haven't read it. This is no, a this, that's a that's a that's authored by a fellow Lebanese man, uh okay. Nicholas Nassim or Nassim Nicholas Talib. So my yeah. understanding is the book argues, and this is what was told to me by a friend, the book argues that most of major life events are changed or impacted by these black swan events, COVID-19, 9-11, you know, World War II, whatever it is. And, and, and I haven't read the book. So what I'm about to say is just my judgment of what was said. I said, well, okay, well, that's partially true. However, the real truth is, is you find out in those moments what you actually believe. Now, let's distinguish a couple of things. You're getting shot in the middle of the street, black swan event. Okay, that's one thing. Um, but when 9-11 happened, what we saw from the conservatives was they didn't really believe in what they have espoused as a limited government. Because ever since then, the government has expanded, especially defense. Now, you may think that's the right thing. You may think that's the wrong thing. The point is they really didn't believe what they had said all these years about this stuff in 2020. A lot of people said they believe in liberty and freedom. What you found is they didn't. So the Black Swan event only exposes, and maybe he says it in the book, I don't know. The point, I think, was what I heard was that this is what changed your mind. So I, I don't know. This is yeah. To, to explain the black swan, like just the concept, the theory of the black swan to begin with for anybody listening that hasn't read the book, it's you can go through, through your entire life and everyone around the world writes down and puts onto a blog or, or, you know, you're inventorying these experiences with swans and every single one of those swans that has been observed and put into the ledger are white worldwide for a thousand years the point is you still can't refute the statement that the black swan exists all right but all you have to do to refute the to refute that or to affirm it rather is to actually observe just one that's all it takes mm -hmm. observing one black swan that's right to say that black swans exist right so use it in the alien context sure we could we have not observed an actual alien Maybe the Pentagon has that they didn't release. I don't know. But so far, not even the Pentagon in that release has stated that they have observed an actual alien. They have observed things that they can't explain. Sure. 
but that, that, does, they, that doesn't mean they observe things that they, that they claim they can't explain, which is different. But sure. And no one, because of that, no one is able to say that aliens don't exist. Right. That's a that's a refutable statement that doesn't work. Sure. Within that logical context. Sure. So that that's really what the black swan is partially about. He yeah. he moves that into saying, okay, over the course of history, we've observed only white swans. No one was predicting this black swan, right? Right. So you can't you can't within a financial context you cannot model risk based upon something that you weren't aware of in the first place. It, it, maybe that's the best way to put the book into context. Sure. Yeah, and the the logical I mean the logic part of it is, is an easy concept. It'd be like saying, right. "Do dinosaurs exist today?" And you say, "No." So we'll prove it. Yeah. You can't. You you me yeah. you cannot be at all spots at all times to therefore disprove that they that they just really they don't exist. So um, yeah, there's strong evidence to indicate. Um, so yeah, I think that kind of gets lost in modern public discourse a lot. So, um, yeah. back to policy, which is where we got started. Um, aliens, aliens. Yes. <laughs> Let's talk about, we talk about aliens, I, talk about whatever. That's why I created the show. So that I can talk about whatever I want to do. Cause all my other shows are pretty niche. I want to show, I can talk about whatever I want to do. And so, um, we talk about whatever, um, <laughs> energy policy, yeah, climate and right. poverty. To your point about poverty, let's talk about that for a second. Um, I have been in Honduras and Nicaragua in what had, the World Health Organization has dubbed some of the most poorest parts of those countries. Extreme mm-hmm. poverty. Extreme poverty. It's it's mm-hmm. The thing about extreme poverty is it's ugly. It's brutal. It's heartbreaking. It's overwhelming. It's depressing. Like there, It is a wide range of emotions that you feel when you go to a mass populated area of extreme poverty. It is hard to deal with. Yeah. Yep. You get there and you're like, okay, you know what? If we just did this and you're like, no, cause then, and if we just did that and like a couple hours in, you kind of have given up on trying to solve the problem. You're like, well, what do you need me to do? Cause let me, let me just do something here to help you while I'm here. And it is a very complicated problem. But to your point earlier, having access to energy and clean water and shelter, those are just the very basic needs that those people have. And I'm right. a little bit concerned that from the U.S. or the West perspective, that when we talk about energy policy or energy practice or whatever, you know, um, what energy source you should use, that mm-hmm. we are, I'm not saying we have to solve that problem, but we are compounding the, the, uh, the issues that you see in those communities. They have a lot of problems on their own, but then we're saying, well, you can't use coal. That's not good enough. Or, you know, nuclear would never be an option for you guys. Or and, and these are complex problems on their own. And our policy that we want to export to the world is is not helping, in my opinion. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, globally, when you look at those situations, you can break it down into the Western developed economies versus the non-Western developed economies, I think. And that's really what we're talking about here. Are, is it right for us? This is one atmosphere, right? It doesn't matter. Atmosphere doesn't have borders. And they're saying that if you emit more carbon into that atmosphere, which stays there for a hundred years or whatever, um, you're just contr- you're just constantly adding to it, and it's constantly getting more and more and more. Even if you cease emitting today, it's still there and it's not going away. All right. So if you al- if you then allow Africa or African countries or um, India in this case maybe to utilize coal to grow their economies so that they can end poverty within their own countries. Um, you, they're going to be admitting that into that one world atmosphere and it's going to create that problem that everybody's talking about. So mm-hmm. the only way, literally, according to what that side of the science suggests, is to literally cease all emissions, 
probably 20 years ago um, of carbon dioxide period and then go net negative in figuring out a way to sequester it out of the atmosphere and put it into something that's a carbon sink like plastics actually are. And so um, you've, you've got a problem there. Do you care about people or do you care about the earth more than you care about people? Um, this, this possibility of risk is that you actually are so hubristic, you don't even understand the science of it as it is today, um, that's going to require technologies that don't even exist yet to combat it, uh, that's so extreme that you're going to ruin entire economies over it, over something that might happen. That's basically a, a tail risk event. Um, you care more about that than you do humanity. That's a effed up notion to me. Um, but let's bring it to the United States. Let's, you know, let's talk about energy policy here because that's what we can control. Um, I, I, there, I think it was Bloomberg, maybe it was Wall Street Journal a couple weeks ago. They ran an article about how um, millennials making over $100,000 a year are living paycheck to paycheck. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a lot of response, a lot of passion that comes into that, it, injected into that discussion, especially on my Twitter feed where people are saying, oh my God, cry me a river. These people are making six figures and, the, and they yeah. live paycheck to paycheck. I have no sympathy for them, you know, F off. But I think what, what you, if you dig deeper into what's actually going on, we're losing the American middle class in this country. The cost for a millennial, you and me, mm-hmm. we're among the oldest of them, but the cost for a millennial to live is exponentially higher, inflationary adjusted than it was for the previous generations. Meanwhile, we make 20% less than those previous generations, again, inflationary adjusted. So what used to be the case, the American dream was to be able to create a middle-class lifestyle on a single earner income. That's mm-hmm. not possible anymore, right? It's hard. And so, yeah. And, and I, th- I think I'm speaking in averages and means sure. and modes, right? Um, th- there's always that distribution, but I'm speaking in those terms. So in this case, I think that we've been more sensitive. We are more sensitive than ever with regard to financial decisions and economic decisions in this country. So if we're going to discuss combating climate change by increasing the cost of electricity, that's right. going to be borne by those people that can't already can't afford it. You're, we're talking about literally decimating the American middle class. It might cease to exist. And so I think we need to be more thoughtful in how sensitive that middle segment of our of our economy is they're very sensitive right now they're they're living paycheck to paycheck on probably two incomes and still living paycheck to paycheck that's not the american dream it's not what i was told growing up was the american dream I don't, what about you well i mean i think yeah I, it's interesting because if you look at one of the big drivers of that is is um home cost right so you, you know you you talk about um you know where do you have to work and what does it cost to live there and we always talk about inflation and a negative. It's, oh, man, look at inflation affects the economy. The one place we'd ever talk about it negatively is home prices. We call that appreciation. <laughs> you know? like, yeah. wow. I'm not saying that it shouldn't be that way or should be that way, but it is kind of been lost. I just sold my house the other day. Um, and in four years, I made $149,000. I had that for four years. We didn't make any, we made a few small improvements here and there. Um, some new floors, but you know, still had a lot of old fixtures. One forty nine. I'm not saying to brag. I'm saying that's how crazy it is right now. Like crazy. 
Like, yeah. That the we bought the home for perspective for two ninety five. So mm-hmm. do the math on that. Like, what's going on in this world? Mm-hmm. Like that is a weird spot to live in. And yeah. maybe they held out for more. Maybe not. I have no idea. But you you talk about eroding the middle class. How do we deal with those type of problems? Because so here are your options. People don't buy. Okay. And so they stay wherever they're at. Um, but if they do buy, now the family that bought, I wish them well and they can afford it. Good for them and no, no ill will and more power to them. However, the, the, the difference in income for a 295 household to a 440 household is substantial. Right. Right. Okay. Well, it's the same neighborhood. It's the same neighbors. Nothing changed. So yeah. how do we account for that? You have uh, energy costs, but you also have home costs, which are out of control right now. Just completely out of control. I mean, we're looking to buy in a couple of years, hopefully when prices reset. Um, because you know, if we paid, you know, a buck fifty over, if we got paid a buck fifty over what we paid sold for it, then what are we gonna pay getting back in? So we're we're trying to figure out well, you know, maybe a year or two years prices reset. But um, it's not just energy, it's also housing costs. And 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 we have talked about well, energy's been the opposite for decades. Yeah. Energy, the price of a barrel of oil has not changed since 1970. Meanwhile, inflation and everything else has has dramatically changed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you talk about mortgages and home prices. Yeah. But look to healthcare. We're the, we're the most fit generation, right. In in at least in modern history, yet yep. we're paying dramatically more for our insurance coverage. Why? Because generations before us made very poor, you know, healthy living choices. So we're being punished for their choices. That, that doesn't seem right. And then you look to childcare costs exponentially higher as well. So if you want to have, people aren't not having kids because they don't want kids in our generation. They're not having kids because they don't feel like they can afford them. They're not buying houses. They're not living with their parents. One in four millennials lives with their parents. They're not doing that because they want to. They're doing that because they don't, they can't afford to live out on their own. You look at, um, you know. Let me push back there a little bit. Let me push back there a little bit. So I do think prices have something to do with it, but I think we have to also acknowledge that narrative and messaging has, plays a role here. So if you look at China's one-child policy, obviously that was a very much a you know, in, in, you know, implemented whenever they wanted to, and by and large it was. Uh, now they've rolled out the three-child policy. I'll bet a decent amount of money that most families don't go from one to three. because the I, I, If you actually study that, during China's one-child policy, the average number of children ter- per woman in China was, I think, close to three. So during their one-child one policy, the, the average was still already three. So that, now they're just saying it's okay. You know, it's it's not like they women in China were only having one child. That didn't occur. Mm. Send me some numbers on that. Let's see, because that's I'll send you the numbers on that. Numbers, because yeah, I, at- I spent a month in China. I met with a lot of people. I had a girl with me that was my age at the time, and she was from China herself, fluent in Mandarin. Uh, we spent time in Suzhou, inland Tibet. We we got all the way to Tibet, and so like I was witnessing this firsthand. Um, I was talking with people all across that country and they're like, no, nah, we've got three kids, you know, and, and these are people that were our parents' generation, right? I was with a girl that was well, my our parents, Well, our parents' generation wouldn't have been in the one-child policy. Fair enough. At, how old do you think uh, the one-child policy adults would have been? It, it would have been like, um, I, think it, I think the one-child policy came in place in 80... Um, the one child policy came in um uh the end, yeah uh 1980 because they had the two child policy in the 70s 
And so the mid 80s, okay, two child uh, in the 70s. And then the policy also modified in the mid 80s to allow rural parents a second child. So the, the rule is a little bit different than the, the thing, but you can, so more like you say, yeah. So, so even under two child policy, they were still in excess of that on average in the rural areas, but not in the main, not, that's not where, not, not, not the main cities. I mean, if you go look at the, the, the amount of, I got so, the same answer everywhere I was. <laughs> they were like, yeah, we don't pay attention to that. Well, okay. Go look at the recent report that they released on their demographic. If, if, if in America they tell you you can't have guns, are you are you going to abide by that? <laughs> if they say you can you can only have one gun, are you going to be like, yeah, okay, I'm just going to have one gun? Or if in America, I mean, people don't do just because it's stated and it's an edict. You know, you, people are not going to just do because the government says that you have to do this. Similar in China, even though they're much more heavy-handed with it. Um, that's just not what my experience has been in China, nor with the data that I've played with. Hmm, interesting. Because if you look at the current census data, the annual growth rate was 0.53% over the past 10 years, which is down 0.5%. Um, and they just released, I don't have the report in front of me, um, but their birth rate is below the replacement level. So it's not, I mean, unless, unless you're saying that China is actually putting out numbers that would indicate a demographic collapse that they don't have. Shocker. They're trying to incentivize <laughs> people to have children. Um, China not being honest. I, I can't believe that one. Well, you know, I don't. Yeah, I, I would. Well, so I would suspect that. Um, let's see here. Well, I'm trying to find what the replacement level is. Here in 1980. Here's the number. In 1980, their population was 1 billion. They went to 1.5 billion over the next three dec two decades. Mm -hmm. I mean, you you don't nearly double your population by having one child. That's from Worldometer. So that's from when to when? 80 to 2010. So 30 years, you double you you 1.5 x your population off of a one child policy or a two child policy. That doesn't occur. Um, granted, I will say this too. This is very confusing for a lot of people. When you're talking about populations, and look, climate change is a population problem, if you're honest about it. Um, those people all are consuming things, and they want to consume things that require energy. And where are you going to get that? You need that from energy-dense resources. But in 1980, there were 2 billion children. I think it was age 15 and under. All right, so 1980, 2 billion children. Guess how many children there are today under that, in that same age demographic? 2 billion. It hadn't changed. We're not growing because we're having more kids. We're growing because we're living longer. Oh, we're definitely having more kids. That, that, that would be the yeah. and the, And the richer you get as a country, the less kids you have. There's a very nice correlation very nice there. As well, right. Um, yeah. Okay, so if you look at China's yearly population growth, according to World Meter, it's, yeah. it's clearly going down. So I don't know... I don't know. I don't, I don't have a hard time seeing why you're arguing that there's, and so why you're that they would be having three kids. But okay, we can put the we can put the China demographic. Debate. We'll play with that later. You I and I will we'll play with that offline. We'll, we'll have a follow up podcast to debate demographics. Okay, <laughs> there you go. We do agree that in more, the more um, first world status you come, the the less children you have. Um, I think that's there's a great book called uh, What to Expect When No One's Expecting. Um, if folks are interested in that, uh, that talks. Yeah. About Factfulness that. is a really good one for that too. Who's that? Factfulness by Hans Rosling, another oh, great okay. one for, that, for that. I'll take that down. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think what got us in the stupid demographic debate. 
I don't even remember, don't even remember now. Um, but you brought up China. You said you spent some time there. Tell us about yeah. that. I'm curious because uh, since you've... <laughs> I mean, I've been a lot of places in the world. I, I don't know how many countries I've been to. Um, but I've been to some of the poorest places in the world, similar to you in, in your discussion. Uh, I've been to some of the wealthiest places in the world. And when I got to China, it... it it is the only country that has been a complete culture shock. I, I, you know, you, I can go anywhere else and I don't get the same culture shock that I got in China. And we started off when we flew in in Beijing. Um, so you're on the coast. Anytime you're on the coast, everybody speaks English. In fact, I was trying to speak Mandarin. And at one point, one of their business leaders that we were meeting with, because it was a U.S. delegation um, from the U.S. Department of, I forget what it was, Department of something um, to China. So we, we were kind of talking business. And, and at one point he goes, why are you degrading yourself? I was like, what do you mean? And he, he goes, you're degrading yourself by speaking our native tongue. If you're educated, you need to show that you have status and you speak English. Um, so all, you know, day one, I'm trying to be respectful of their culture, but mm -hmm. in their, in their eyes, I'm degrading myself. Um, and, and again, that was on the coast. So the moment you moved interior, it was an entirely different world again. And people speak Mandarin, right? Well, there's eight, I've, I think there's eight provinces in China or something like that, maybe it's 16. And once you get into these different provinces, someone in Beijing, who I was with a fluent person, grew up in Beijing, literally spent her whole life there, um, educated in the US, but she literally couldn't understand some of these people. So you get into these, these provinces are their own countries in, in, of themselves. And you learn very quickly how the people do not actually enjoy their life. They uh, they do what they say, you know, they're told to do. And if they don't, they're, they kind of, there's some heavy handed consequences. Um, and, and then I got to all the way to Tibet, which is kind of Western China, if you're not familiar with geography. And we had a guy that was way overweight that was with us. He was probably 400 pounds. And when he got out, these people, you know, you're up in the mountains, you're in the Himalayas. They, it's a lot of hard work just to stay alive. And so they, um, this guy gets off the plane and these people run up to him and they start poking him with sticks and laughing and pointing. And it was just, you know, was, that, that entire country is just so different than what we had. Uh, we were in one of the markets. This is the crazy story. So I look over and I'm like, what is that? And on the, in the market, you know, you stuff everywhere, food everywhere. And there was this stick and on the stick, there was three or four scorpions. All right. Stingers still on. And they weren't dead. They were moving. All right. And I'm like, oh my God, look at this. And, you know, we all huddle around. We're looking at this. And then this little tiny girl, probably six years old, seven years old, comes in front of us, grabs one of the sticks and just eats them. Wow. And I was, yeah, a little six-year-old stinger and all. And I was, I was just blown away by that. And everybody was trying to bet me. They're like, Hef, you got to do this. You got to do it. A little girl just did it. You got to do it, man. I couldn't do it. But it's it's an incredibly different culture. It's completely antithetical to the West. Um, and that's not going to change. So there's a there's trouble brewing, and whether we can deal with it now or we can deal with it later. When you say there's trouble brewing, we can deal with it now or later. What do you mean? Very blatantly, war. They're mobilizing an army. Their army is now the largest in the world. We've allowed that to happen. They have more. Their naval uh, fleet is larger than the United States now. Um, they are being increasingly aggressive against the West. They just shut down Hong Kong. They're annexing it, basically. They shut down the papers and free press and imprisoned those people in Hong Kong. I forget the name of the 
article or the or the uh, media organization, but that happened, you know, in the recent weeks. And now they're being increasingly aggressive with Taiwan. And you know, ten years ago, all the war simulations had us winning that war um, against China. You know, us protecting Taiwan, which makes all the chips in the world for semiconductors. Uh, that's why you're having car shortages right now, right? So Taiwan's incredibly important. It makes all the computer chips in the world, basically. And China wants it too. And it was, it's part of China, quote unquote, but it somehow became its own, you know, political beast. Uh, that's a democracy. Um, I, I really don't understand how that actually occurred or why China allowed that to happen, but it did. And now the war simulations are having China winning that war pretty, you know, most of the time. And so give it a few more years, another decade or so, and, and you know, a lot of these simulations don't have the United States coming out on top. They're already starting to change hands as we speak. So they're being increasingly aggressive and we're, we're just falling away. Um, we're, demo we're a democracy, a democratic republic. They're a communist, an authoritarian government. Um, we're, we just do, those two ideological differences cannot be reconciled. So you think we should go to war with China? I'm telling you it's going to happen if if this continues. But what continues specifically? They're increasing aggression and imperialism. Um, and America, you know, and the West's very foundational belief that the world should operate differently. Well, I mean. They're infringing upon everyone's rights. They're building islands in, in everyone else's waters. Literally, they're drudging and creating islands for military purposes. They're annexing countries. They're not respecting human rights. They're not respecting the environment. They're building, they built so much coal in the last 16 years that it equals more coal-fired generation than the United States, Mexico, and Canada combined. Do we care about climate change or not? Do we care about human rights or not? Do we care about the environment or not? You tell me. Well, I mean, you can. Okay, so it's it's one thing to say those things, but so human rights would involve, um, you know, if you're going to war, human rights are a part of that as well. Yeah, as far they, as they, they have slavery in China, and they they look at what they're doing against the the Muslims in Xinjiang. The Uyghurs. That is pretty well documented at this point. I mean, we've covered China pretty extensively on the podcast. Uh, we've had on people about the Uyghurs. We've had Joshua Wong, an active Hong Kong protester who was jailed. Um, so, I mean. I, I, if we've 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 tried to cover it uh, best we can. I'm a little concerned with the war rhetoric. Um, a couple things. One, we spent since 1945 chasing the Russians all over the world, fighting proxy wars um, mm -hmm. for no real reason. And you talk about um, a climate change or b human rights. It seems like we didn't really care about any of that for a lot of those issues. Um, and so, you know, China's aggression or potential aggression. I do agree with you that Taiwan, I think, is kind of the the point of, you know, that, you know, what what how far will they push that? Um, but if you look at their actions last year, uh, when they got mad at Australia, they increased their imports from the U.S. They didn't decrease from the U.S. And so they're, they're still very much dependent on the U.S. And the U.S. is dependent on them. It's not like Russia where the economies were pretty much separate. The intermingling between the economies seems that would prevent the two countries from going to war. So that's why I'm always curious why people think their war is coming. I, I am curious of that as well, but it's going to come to a head. We can't just keep turning a blind eye to things like genocide. That's antithetical to our foundational beliefs as a country. 
we will not let that stand at some point people will stand up and say no you can't do this and china's going to say f off you don't have the power or the authority we have the moral high ground you are the west and be quiet we control you you want to be you want renewables you can't have it without us we control extraction we control processing they they have us by the balls and they know it and that's why they're being increasingly imperialistic in everything that they do. They, they're, yeah, I mean, they're pushing the borders. There's no doubt about it. I don't know how far. I mean, their top military general, I'm reading this right now, um, June 10th of this year, prepare for war. Yeah, but okay. Let's, so, let's go. I mean, they're, they're ready. <laughs> I mean, okay. You know, right. So part of the, Part of the thing would be is that that would seem to play into the exact hand that they want you to play into, which is if you're, you know, um, politicians need a reason to stay in office. And one of those reasons is, is they create an enemy in the U.S. It could be the Democrats or the Republicans. It could be Al Qaeda. It could be whatever. Uh, China, by creating U.S. as an enemy, helps solidify their population to back their um, to back their leadership. You're not going. The Chinese people don't want. I disagree with that completely. That that's that's a thought that works in democracy. I agree. Sun Tzu, all of that thought process, Machiavellian thought. You have to either have an incredible enemy to mobilize people as, in unity, or you needed a, a very very noble cause. Right. That that's thoughts for democracy. China is not a democracy. China says, just like Tiananmen Square, and in recent comments, they're like, yeah, we, we'll kill you again, unarmed. We will kill you if you do not bend the knee. It's not, we need an enemy. It's, we'll kill you. So if, okay, let's just assume that my premise is wrong. Then the opposite would be is that people would overthrow their governments around the world, and they don't do that. So there is a reason, there is a sense in which they look to their governments for stability. Uh, yes. And so they're looking to, for stability because as bad as they are, the outside yeah. matters. So I don't, I don't, so in, why, in China, why, China, why? I think you have this weird thing that's never occurred before um, with regard to socialism. I, the, the Russians got this wrong and they, it's that nationalism. So in the United States, we've had growth in nationalism. They've written a bunch of books about that with Trumpism and, and his rise to power, et cetera, here, politically speaking. In China, most people talk to socialism, but they don't talk about that nationalistic element. Mm -hmm. And so they have like quasi-democracy in China, which Milton Friedman wrote and talked a lot about, actually. Um, and then you blend that with this nationalistic kind of proud, like, oh, hey, we are now dominating the United States. We got here because of this authoritarian regime that's very heavy-handed. They kill a lot of people. They suppress everything from human rights to the environment. Doesn't matter to them. But you know what? It got us on top. So we're gonna, we're gonna, we're proud that we're on top, and we're gonna, we're gonna say it's okay. The means just or the the ends justify the means. I think that's what's happening and what's going on in China from a political perspective nobody's they're not going to challenge that because they'll die if they do they're, they're going to prison for life if you write about something that they don't like for example so who's going to stand up to that they don't have the means to stand up to that it's really why the founders of our country basically wanted to have the second amendment so that you have at least some ability to stand up in, in case something like that occurred in this country 
Right. Okay. Yeah. So there's definitely some of that, that, that there's fear, no, no, no denying that. But I mean, if you look to the Middle East, the Middle East, we were supposed to open up democracy everywhere. And that, that, that has not worked anywhere that I know of um, because those people aren't looking for the same style of government that we're looking for. So I, I, very different people. That's my people. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's crazy. You just right. got to well, leave this alone. <laughs> I just, I, I don't, I mean, if you go to war, if you say, well, we're going to war with China, um, a, there was a podcast, and if you remind me, we'll get offline. I'll try to find it sent to you. It talked about the actual um, technical uh, specifications of Chinese military tactics and the U.S. military tactics, and, and okay, they were struggling to hit air, moving aircraft carriers with a tomahawk, with not tomahawk cruise missile, whatever kind of rocket or missile. And I, I was just like, okay, hold on, how hard is it to hit an aircraft carrier? <laughs> like that's pretty big. But they're yeah. like, well, they're struggling to do this, and but then. They were saying, if you listen to it at the end of the podcast, it was kind of one of those things where, you know, they, what they say they can't do, we said they could do exponentially more. What we said we couldn't do, they said that we could do exponentially more. So you're kind of left going, well, who can do what? And the answer was, no one knows. And they get these weird discussions and these track two diplomacies. It was like, you know, if the new, if the U.S. were to use a nuclear bomb in your country, what would you do? And it's like, right. well, I'm not sure how you respond. And. So I, I really think that so much of that is 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 hyperbole and talk. The other thing I'll say is people in power want to stay in power. So if you're saying that the U.S. and China are going to go to war, Xi Jinping might not make it through. There's a reason Kim Jong-un ain't nuking us. He wants to stay in power. He does not want to lose. He's got a good gig from his perspective, and he doesn't want to screw that up. So he shoots a rocket off into the ocean every now and then. He walks out. He says, look at me. Let me thump my chest. I'm the big dog out here. And he goes back to eating his whatever he eats and watching 90s Bulls basketball. I, I just, I do think you can't deny. Right. I'll, put, I'll, I'll, I'll leave the listeners with this. You, you and I disagree on this a little bit. Um, if you want to read about this, this is not me saying these things. It's not like I'm a, this dude in Oklahoma that's like, you know, disconnected from the world. I, I pay for two subscriptions, the Wall Street Journal and The Economist. The Economist's entire June 26th issue is all about China, and it literally set, spells out everything I'm saying right now. The people, the Economist, a left, a left, self-described left of center publication from London, the United Kingdom, has the holds these same views about China, and it goes through the history and how they and how really Mao and then after, post Mao everything occurred politically, how they're holding on to power and how they're literally just taking, they're going to take over the world through force. They previously, um, anyway, go read that issue. It's a bunch of great information. If you're at all interested on this topic of potential war between the West and China, I think it's brewing. I don't see a way in which it doesn't come to a head. We'll put a friendly razor on it then. How about that? Yeah, give, give, give it 20 years. I think there will 20, be. Oh, 20, okay, well, hold on. Anything can happen in 20 years. Hey, we need the Black Swan book out for that. Hey, I, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not saying this is happening tomorrow. I'm saying I don't, I think it's unavoidable. Um, and I think the longer that we allow China to build up, to be aggressive, to take over strategic military installations, the worse it's going to be for the West. Appeasement, right? That's what we did with, with Hitler. In Germany, we appeased him until it was too late and we couldn't do anything about it. Appeasement is like fe feeding the alligator, hoping you're going to get eaten last. Hmm. That's not the right policy. You should listen to the, the guest that's coming on after you because he's, 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 he's not talking about China, but he is talking about this very mentality. But you are a self-described conservative, right? 
I am as center as you can get. I've taken a few different political tests and uh, like literally bullseye right smack dab in the middle. Um, I am, a, I would describe myself as a constitutional conservative from the perspective that I think that document's amazing and we should live by it as a country. If we don't, then let's just say, fuck it. Um, let's all just have a bunch of different nations within a nation. Cause that's what it'll turn into. So, um, socially there's a lot of stuff I don't care about. I think they're fringe issues that people care way too much about. Um, I like the electoral college. It's meant to be there to protect minorities. Ironically, the Democrats want to get rid of the electoral college. Uh, they want mob rule. And so mostly I align with Republican ideals, but I'll attack Republicans all day long. Well, um, the, reason, the reason I'm asking is, is to, to, to your, your espouse, it sounds like an interventionist policy, which is in the neocon movement has been their policy, but historic conservatism and constitutionalism would not espouse this very same ideal. And I find that to be part of the reason when I left the conservative party years ago was because they were always, Hey, Let's go fight someone over here. Let's go do this over here. And I'm not saying there's never, I'm not a pacifist by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I am, however, uh, very much a believer in the general non-aggression principle. And that applies to the government, that applies to the heads of state, that applies to the police, that applies, and now we can, we'll probably differ on where exactly. I'm, I'm actually on your side with that. So, so to your, my question then was, was how then do we engage China with a non-aggression principle? That's my. That's the problem. I think that we're running out of political tools by which to engage. I think that they they literally do not care. They're going to do whatever the hell they want to do, and because of that, you're going to run out of mechanisms by which to engage, other than a yeah. blow up, a powder keg situation. And again, we did it. If if we don't learn how Germany came to power, how Hitler came to power, it was literally through global appeasement. Nobody wanted to deal with it. Okay. Let, let me have yeah, a couple things here because this is important to distinguish what, what I'm not saying. Um, what I'm not saying is we should sit around and not talk about China. We've had a podcast on this podcast about the Uyghurs. I have publicly written about the Uyghurs and talked about the Uyghurs and how's it yeah. genocide. And I think every American should get on Twitter right now and say that they are killing the Uyghurs and it is a crime against humanity. Okay. Yeah. It is. It's the first the time they've been censored since Tiananmen Square, yeah. literally by the European Union. The other thing is, is that we should look to China. If you, I don't like saying defeat because I don't. I, that's, um, I think that invokes a little bit militaristic, more more military type action than I'm thinking of. But if you want to beat in a competition, defeat China. They tell you how to beat them. You know how is you talk about them. That is the one thing in the world <laughs> that scares them to death. All the things that you mentioned, Tiananmen Square, Hong Kong, Taiwan. It's all about this idea that scares the CCP to death. And that is the thing that scares them. In 1936, leading up to World War II, there was no way to communicate this message. Hitler was able to operate, by and large, in secret. And if you were in where I'm at, Granbury, Texas, or Oklahoma, all you had was the whatever radio station you got. And if you got the paper, you read the paper. That is not the world we live in today. The world we live in today is actually one that allows us to put unique pressure on politicals um, that they couldn't do historically. And so the reason North Korea is the reason North Korea is, is because they're 10 steps ahead of China. There's a reason they live like in the 1970s, because North Korea understands once the genie's out the bottle, you can't put it back in. China was opening back up. Now they've tried to tighten it back up. My personal opinion is they realize they done screwed up. It's gone too far. And mm -hmm. they realize that the genie was out the bottle. And so they're trying to rein it back in. I don't think it's going to work. I think it's a slow game, but I don't think it's going to work. But do you, do you think they go to war with Taiwan? 
to rein them in and bring them back under control? I don't know. I, I hear uh, there's a lot of smart people on the China on the Taiwan stuff that have an issue. My concern because oh, that happens, that's the that's the I, I agree. That's, that's the spark point that you probably it is. That's the line of potential no return. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't. So I have concerns about China fishing. I have concerns about all the stuff that, that you do. Um, maybe not the same level. I think the Taiwan issue is the one where it really becomes hard. And I'm not saying that. There's a lot of philosophical things we could deal with on the top. I'm not saying that. I think that that's the point where it's hard then to argue that they're not being as imper, uh, they're not being imperialistic um, as, as some have. So if you go read certain books about how they do lending and stuff, some of the stuff they do isn't as predatorial as you might think. Some of it's worse. Depends on what you you know, know how you look at <laughs> stuff. Um, but yeah. like the Dragon's Gift's a great book to go read some of their own practices on um, on uh, Africa. But Taiwan, and this is uh, to, to, to go to Taiwan. What I have argued for is that everyone should come out and say that Taiwan is its own country. This, you know, go look up how many countries acknowledge Taiwan as a country. It's fourteen, I think. And okay. Africa, there's only one, I believe, because you cannot get Chinese funding if you say that. So just say it. I don't care if it's true or not. Just say it. This because what happens? Look at what happened with China and Australia last year. The Chinese, Eric Bagshaw episode, whatever, um, on inside the war room, they wanted to pressure the Australians into how they wanted their news to run. And the Australians were like, no. So they pulled out. Guess what? That's so they're trying to put pressure on them. But that's how you that's the I'm not saying it's the only way, but that is the first way to put pressure on the Chinese is talking because they don't want the talking. I'm talking about the citizens. The citizens are separate. I, I, I think it's we, a great I think it's a great move. Um I think we should add, I join you. I advocate for this. Talk about them. Look at look at literally just suggesting, hey, we want to inspect the the health facility where COVID came from, the coronavirus came from. That literally got Australian coal banned to China. Just them saying, hey, we want to inspect it. Trump was like, hey, guys, you created a bioweapon. You created a bioweapon. <laughs> You're crazy. We hate you guys. And the Aussies are like, well, you know, listen, Trump's kind of crazy. Yeah. Well, because Trump said it, it, nobody wanted to listen. But that, yeah. but it, so, so they can only do that so much. They cannot feed their own people. They cannot power their own people. They are they have a lot of weaknesses. And so if you continue to press the issue, and again, to be clear, with this the leadership, not, not just the average Joe. I'm not saying go harass some average Chinese person in the street. I'm talking about um, writing stuff that's about political statements, um, Pushing back is right about Xi Jinping. Literally, the other thing is go go at him. He is the government. He is the CCP. When when they they, Chinese went to the UN uh, a few months back and they said, "Well, if you want to come inspect the Uyghur camps, uh, come do it." Uh, uh, Biden, in my opinion, Trump, whoever was in office, doesn't matter. I didn't vote for either one of them. They, the president at the time, should have called up Air Force One and said, "Hey." Get on whoever the heck we send to inspect these things. Load it down. Send it over there today. That's yeah. how you start to win this battle. Because that's not confrontational. That's nothing. You're just doing what they say you can do, and that's what they yeah. don't. That's and so the other thing is the European. Have you watched, have you watched the documentary China Hustle? Mm-mm. You need Good. to watch that one. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's all about the reverse mergers out of China into the United States financial oh, markets yeah. mm-hmm. to literally do nothing but steal from the United States citizens. Mm-hmm. And the Chinese are complicit. The, the government's complicit in falsifying those numbers. 
And this guy figured it out. And he's been trying to go to Congress. Nobody cares. Nobody's listening to him. I mean, hell, Le LeBron James is out there saying he loves China. Mm -hmm. I guess LeBron James doesn't really care about all these other issues that China, you know, continues well, it, to. It, that's enforce. the other thing that, that makes it tough is that the the elite of the elite are making billions of dollars. If you go back last that's year, it. Uh, the German the German businesses were like, oh my gosh, you know, y'all got to do something. The Chinese are kicking our butt. Well, part of that is because they struck these deals that they thought they could outmaneuver the Chinese. The Chinese outmaneuvered them, and now they're like, well, uh, okay, hey, we want it fair. And Germany's like, well. If we piss off the Chinese, our citizens who need these imports, they can't afford those. So we'll be out. Of, so you're seeing a lot of things happen. And I just I don't yeah. believe and I could be wrong here. I just don't believe that China will be able to navigate the same way that it has. And I think a lot of their actions are trying to preserve what they have. The, and so we look at it as expansion. And on some level, that's true. I think they're trying to preserve the power that they have because they feel that they're losing the grip. I could be wrong. We'll see. I'm just uh, just one dude in Granbury, Texas, to use your analogy. Yeah, no, my I think one of the most interesting things about all of China at the moment is that it is now, it now marks they're about to have their hundredth anniversary of of the CCP, which is socialism and and that party in China. It is the longest reigning um, socialistic regime in the history of the world. It actually surpassed that of Russia and the USSR. Mm -hmm. And so China has done something that Russia was not able to. Um, and it was due to their ruthlessness, as The Economist put it this month. They, they literally said, and they criticized Russia for not being willing to kill unarmed citizens. That's what, that's what Xi Jinping criticized Russia on. They said, if you had any kind of gumption, if you had any kind of conviction, you would have murdered and slaughtered those people like we did in Tiananmen Square. You didn't have the resolve you didn't deserve to have an authoritarian regime and a socialist government. That's what's required. Okay. We, we are. I, I didn't expect us to go on China, but you know what? It was fun nonetheless. Uh, <laughs> what to get you back on? Talk about energy and poverty and climate. All this stuff. Hey, it's all wrapped into it. All renewables go through China. I mean, so, um, Tell folks where they can connect and find you. At. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't write a ton about China, uh, but Hefner.energy is my website. Um, I, I hope you take a moment to visit it. If you read only one article that I've written, uh, write, read The Social Dilemma and The Office, The Platitudes of Michael Scott Bouncing Around the Echo Chambers <laughs> of uh, Social Media. It, it's a fun, creative piece. Uh, I'm trying to bring more levity to the situation. This was a heck of a lot less levity than I expected today, but uh, still a good required discussion nonetheless. Um, and if, and if you, if you need anybody to come speak on, on these issues, please reach out to me via the website. Okay. Shoot me that, um, article and I'll link to it in the show notes when we get off here. And, uh, okay. yeah, yeah. Well, listen, I, I told you before we got on, I said, we would talk about it. You said, whatever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, you you go for it. <laughs> this I'll is talk whatever. about whatever you want to talk about and I'll well, be transparent as can be. Well, no, it, it just, you know, so for the listener standpoint, yeah, this was just, well, like I said, how do we go in China? And then next thing you know, we spent so much time in China. Uh, one of the things, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll leave with this, is that when I talk about talking about these issues, talking about these issues is part of it. And in, and in 2021, people just can't talk anymore. And so yeah. whether we agree or not on whether China's going to war or not, guess what? Me and you disagreeing doesn't impact whether or not we're going to China. I hope we don't. I just don't see it. No, no, no. I, I'm saying but me and you, me and you disagreeing on it doesn't actually impact the policy of us going to war. Right. right. But it's an exercise that needs to be happening because um, you're going to point out things. Don't point out things. And so hopefully, 
that's one of the reasons I wanted this platform was um, different discussions that I don't normally get to get into. So I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we will link to all your stuff, Hefner.energy. And to your point on Twitter the other day, you, you asked the question about um, how often do you publish something that you, that you, that you, uh, that you wrote something and you hate it. Yes. Every <laughs> single like, tweet. I'm like, is it who or whom there? I don't even know, you know, or yeah. after it's or am I supposed to, or, Oh, I should have said it this way. Um, God. So uh, I feel your pain. Yeah. On that. Yeah. It's, it's a hard thing. I have a new, newfound respect for everybody that puts out original content. It's hard work and it's a lot of time and effort. So congrats to you on everything you've built with, with war room media. It's, it's not easy oh, and you've done a great job. Well, listen, we'll, we'll get you back on. And uh, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. And we will have an, I don't know, this is coming out, I guess, on Thursday. We'll have an episode either Friday or Monday. So talk to you then.